0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, the, the title of this message this morning is, A Woman's Place in the Church. Now, you know, we, we, we've all heard the saying, a woman's place is in the kitchen. You know, maybe you've seen this meme uh, that, that says, uh, you know, for those who say the woman's place is in the kitchen, just remember, that's where all the knives are kept. Uh, <laughs> so we're not talking this morning about the kitchen, but rather this morning, we're, we're talking, uh, as, as the title suggests, a woman's place in the church. Because again, the Apostle Paul here in chapter 11 is, is bringing up some hot-button topics. Some hot-button issues like, like whether or not a woman should wear a head covering, or uh, you know, uh, whether she should have long hair versus short hair, or you know, what a woman can do or what a woman cannot do in the church. So these are the things that we're going to talk about in this message that we've titled, A Woman's Place in the Church. So now with that, as we go back to verses 1 and 2, we see that that this issue was a matter of tradition. This was a matter of tradition. Uh, Again, verse 1, after Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He then says again, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. So now we notice this word traditions, the Greek term here, paradosis. Uh, it's a word that, that means teachings that have been passed down from, 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 from one person to another person, or maybe even teachings that have been passed down from one generation to another generation. Now, you know, those could be family traditions, like, like holiday traditions, Thanksgiving and Christmas, or then again, it, it could be even religious traditions that have been passed down from one generation to another generation. Reminds me of, uh, of this Jewish synagogue I heard about that got a new rabbi. Now, the old rabbi retired. He's now living in a nursing home. And, and, and so now this new rabbi comes in, and, and yet he comes into a hotbed because there's, there's this conflict. There's this fighting, and, and they're fighting over the tradition of where to stand whenever they would pray the prayer called the Shema. Now, if you don't know, the, the Shema is, is, is a prayer from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and so, so they had this debate, they had this, this, this conflict over wh- whether you should stand on the right side of the synagogue when you prayed the Shema, or whether you should stand on the left side of the synagogue when you prayed the Shema. And so they'd go back and forth and forth and back, and, and this kept going on week after week after week. And so finally, the, the new rabbi goes to the nursing home and meets with the former rabbi. He's like, look, you've got to settle something for me. I mean, you know, which, what is the tradition? Is the tradition to, to stand on the right side of the synagogue when you pray the Shema? And the former rabbi shakes his head and says, no, that's not the tradition. He says, oh, well, then the, the tradition must be to stand on the left side of the synagogue when you pray the Shema. And he says, nope, that's not the, 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 the tradition either. He's easy for me to say. And, and he goes, well, then you've got to help me figure this out. Because week after week, the congregation always stands up and they get in this huge conflict and they always fight over whether you should stand on the right or stand on the left. And the rabbi shakes his head and smiles and says, Ah, that's the tradition. The tradition was fighting over where to stand. <clears throat> now this word tradition, paradosis, in the New Testament, this is often a word that's often used with a negative connotation. Quite frankly, oftentimes we see it used when, whenever Jesus was confronting the religious leaders over their traditions. You know, for example, in Matthew chapter 15, we, we see that the religious leaders one day get offended because Jesus' disciples were not following the, the religious tradition of, of ritualistic ceremonial hand-washing before they ate. And so, so they come to Jesus and they're like, you know, why do your disciples violate our traditions by not washing their hands? To which Jesus responds and says, why do you violate God's word with your traditions? And so it was often used in a negative connotation. However, uh, we, we have rabbis like like Rab, Rabbi Eleazar, for example, uh <coughs> who show us that they would often elevate the teachings of men over the, tr- the, the teachings of the Scripture. Rabbi Eleazar said, He who expounds the Scripture in opposition to, to the tradition has no share in the world to come. It's a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than it was to contradict the Scripture itself. So the problem was they were elevating the traditions of men over the Word of God. And so typically it was used in a negative connotation. Now, however, there, there were some times that this word tradition, paradosis, was used in a positive way. For example, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, the issue at hand here in 1 Corinthians uh, was, was, was not, you know, the, 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 the traditions of family. It wasn't family traditions. It wasn't holiday traditions. It wasn't even religious traditions. No, the, the question at hand here in 1 Corinthians was, what is the traditional role of women? What's the traditional role of women? Now, you have to understand that in the Greek world, and keep in mind the Corinthians that Paul's writing to, they were Greeks, so you have to understand that, that the Greek world was, was a very male-dominated, very male-chauvinistic society, very male-dominated culture. In fact, uh, you know, we, ha- we have that phrase that we've heard before that says that a, that a woman's place is, is in the home bearing children. By the way, do you know who invented that phrase? Do you know where that phrase came from? The ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks in the Apostle Paul's day were the literal ones who originally coined the phrase that a woman's place is in the home bearing children. They invented the phrase in Paul's day. And so this was a very male chauvinistic society. Now, when it comes to the whole idea of head coverings, you need to realize that the Jews and the Greeks had two very different opposing views, opposing traditions when it came to head coverings. For example, the Greeks... Uh, said that, that Greek women should wear head coverings. You know, kind of like uh, in the Muslim culture today, you'll see that the, 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 the women often wear these, the, the head covering called the hijab. And so uh, Greek women in ancient times, they uh, were, were taught to wear head coverings. And, and on the flip side, Greek men never wore head coverings. And so in Greek culture, women wore head coverings, men did not. However, with the Jewish traditions, the Jewish culture, it was, it was the exact opposite. In Jewish culture, Jewish men, especially when they went to the temple, would wear a head covering. You'll see this today. They go to the synagogue, they'll, they'll wear what we call a yarmulke today. But when they go to the temple to pray, they, they were to wear a, a, a prayer shawl over their head called a talit. And so when they would pray, they were to cover their head. Jewish men covered their head. Whereas Jewish women never covered their head when they prayed. It was considered sacrilegious. It was insulting for a woman to cover her head when she prayed. And so it depended on the culture. You had the Greek culture. You had the Jewish culture. And they were two opposing cultures. And, and, and so obviously, Paul here, he's dealing with the Greek culture. This wasn't universal. This wasn't something that applied to every single person in every single culture. He's dealing with the Greek culture, where among the Greeks, Greek women always covered their head and Greek men did not. And so perhaps the, the heart of the question was something like this. Maybe the Corinthians were asking and saying, hey, now that we're saved, now that we're born again, now that we're Christians, you know, which tradition should we keep? Should we keep the Jewish tradition or the Greek tradition? I mean, after all, our, our Savior was Jewish, but then again, we're Greek. So, so which one should we keep? Which tradition? Should our, should our women have their heads covered or uncovered? Now, so at the heart of this, this was a matter of tradition. Now with that, as we pick it up again in verse uh, 3 through 10, we also see that this issue was a cultural issue, a cultural issue. Verse 3, Paul says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And here's where it becomes a a cultural issue, verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head was shaven. For a wife, if she will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, but since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man, and neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angel's. So again, we've got two traditions, the Greek tradition, the Jewish tradition. And so it's, it's a cultural thing, depending on the culture that you're in, determine which, which, which tradition you kept. Now, by the way, it does remind me of, of a, a woman named Catherine Booth. Now, Catherine Booth, Booth was the wife of the famous William Booth. Now, William Booth was famous because he's the one who founded a ministry called the Salvation Army. See, long before Salvation Army was a thrift store, it was a ministry. It was a church reaching the inner city, reaching the homeless, reaching the poor. And, and William Booth, as a part of his ministry, uh, he, he had his wife really serving in some key critical roles, including the role of preaching and teaching. Now, this didn't go unnoticed, and it didn't go uncriticized. In fact, on one occasion, some guy came up to her and said, hey, didn't the Apostle Paul uh, say in 1 Corinthians that women should not even speak in the church? And she answered and said, well, yes, he did. But in the first place, this is not the church. And in the second place, I'm not a Corinthian. (laughs) And the point stands. You had the Corinthian culture of ancient times, and we've got our modern culture here in America. And they're two different cultures. Now, at the same time, however, you know, there are some who will look at this and say, well, you know, this passage isn't really relevant. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's cultural. You know, what I mean, in our culture, we don't wear head coverings today, so this doesn't really apply to us. It doesn't really matter. Well, now, let me just say, on the one hand, culture does matter let me illustrate. I I read about a college student, and she she was debating her her professor about culture. Now, the professor was saying that you need to be sensitive to cultural differences. And now she came back, and she said, well, you know, I don't think that there's any difference between culture, except for, you know, like food and and language and and, and clothing. But other than that, people are, are basically all the same. All people are basically all the same. So they went back and forth, and and then finally at the end of the class, there was this young man in the class, one of the students, who's from the Middle East, and he came up to the girl, and he said, he said, I just want to make sure I understand. Now, you're saying that there's no difference between cultures, right? And she said, well, yeah, that's right. He said, good, because I find you really attractive. I already have two wives, but I'd like you to be my third wife. You see, culture does matter. Culture does matter. And here's why the culture of the Corinthians, the Greek culture, mattered here in chapter 11. The reason it mattered is because in that culture, a head covering was a sign. It was a, it was a symbol. He said here it was a sign of authority. Now here's why. Uh, it, it, it was a number one. It was a symbol. It was a sign that she was a married woman. You saw a woman with a veil, you saw a woman with, with, a, with a head covering, and it was a sign that she was taken. It was a sign that she was spoken for. She's a married woman, much like our, our wedding band today. You know, you see a wedding band on a woman's finger, it's, it's, it's the international symbol of get lost, creep. You know, it, it, this, this, you, you were out of bounds. And so, and so it, the, the, it, was a, it was a sign that this was a taken woman. But number two, it was a sign of, of protection. That this was not only a married woman, but it was a sign that there was a man somewhere who would, uh, who would defend her and protect her, even if he had to die in the process for it. Now listen, in that culture, this was important. Because this was a, a very male-dominated, chauvinistic society, as I mentioned earlier. And so this was a culture that had a, a very low view of women. In fact, in that culture, women were looked down on. They were basically viewed as property. In some cases, they were even sold like they were property. They had no rights. They weren't allowed to work, and they were not allowed to receive a formal education. In fact, here's what the famous philosopher Aristotle said. Aristotle said, quote, women were not capable of making important decisions for themselves. That's what Aristotle said. That is how the average Greek man thought in that culture. In fact, Greek men in that culture had, had, had a way of saying that, that there were three things to be grateful for, three things to be thankful for. They said, number one, they were thankful that they were not a beast. Number two, they were thankful that they were not a barbarian. And number three, they were thankful that they were not a woman. And so it was in, in that culture, you needed protection, Because this is a culture that if you didn't have protection, you could be easily mistreated. You could be taken advantage of. You could be abused. And so that veil, that that sign was a sign, not only that she was a married woman, but she was a protected woman. Mess with her, and there's a man to answer to. That's what the sign was. was. It was an international symbol. But here's what was happening. Women in that culture were getting saved. They're coming to Christ. They're becoming Christians. And in Galatians 3.28, it says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what was happening is, is a lot of these Greek women, a lot of these Corinthian women were getting saved, they're becoming Christians, and now they're discovering their newfound freedom in Christ. They're discovering that in Christ, they're one. That in Christ, they're, they're, there's no partiality. That, that in Christ, there is equality between the sexes. And so what was happening was that some of these new Christian women, you know, were were, were taking off their veils, taking off their head covering as sort of a way to to demonstrate their newfound liberty, their newfound freedom, exercise their freedom, saying, you know, hey, all things are lawful. But what they didn't realize was that by taking off their veils, taking off their their head covering, they were now making themselves vulnerable to attack, vulnerable to, to, to being abused, Years back, Sir William Ramsey visited the Middle East and he made this observation. He said, the veil is, is the honor, the power, and the dignity of women. With, with a veil on her head, she can go anywhere. But without that veil, the woman is, is a thing of naught whom anyone may insult. A woman's authority and dignity vanish along with the all-covering veil that she discards. You take off the veil, you remove your, your, your protection. You, you make yourself vulnerable to abuse. And so, in that culture, the head covering meant something in that culture. Now, with that, verses 11 through 15, now Paul gets into the whole debate about long hair versus short hair. Verse 11 Nevertheless, in the Lord, a woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as a woman was made from man, so man now is born of a woman and all things are from God, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has, has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair was given to her for a covering. So we have this debate, long hair versus short hair, and can men have long hair? Can, can women have short hair? Now, I've, t- I've told you this before, but it reminds me of, of the teenager. He, he's 16. He now finally gets his driver's license, and he, and, he, and he asks his dad, hey, now that I have my license, when can I start driving the family car? And said, his dad said, listen, if you want to drive the family car, there's three things that you've got to do first. Number one, you've got to bring up your grades because they're not good. Number two, you need to start reading your Bible every day. And number three, get a haircut a couple months go by, he gets his report card, he comes back, and he's like, Dad, look, I brought up my grades, they're all A's and B's, and, and not only that, I'm reading my Bible every day, just like you said, so how about it? Can I start driving the family car? His dad smiled and said, sure, as soon as you get a haircut. Well, at that, he, he said, listen, Dad, I, I've been reading the Bible every day, and I know that Jesus had long hair. And his dad said, yeah, that's right, and you know what? He also walked everywhere he went. Now, this passage is is more than just, you know, long hair versus short hair, and can men have long hair? Can women have short hair? You see, what we have to understand is is that behind the scenes, there were two things happening culturally. There's two things that that were common in the Greek culture that feed into this passage. Number one, cross-dressing. Number two, prostitution. Cross-dressing and prostitution. Now, first of all, you have to understand that cross-dressing was a thing in the Greek world and even in the Roman world. In fact, the Roman emperor, Caliglia, would frequently dress as a woman. So much so that later on, his nephew, Nero, followed his uncle's example and would frequently dress as a woman as well. In fact, uh, the Romans had a, a, a pagan festival called Saturnalia. And during Saturnalia, worshipers during this time would would cross-dress. Men would dress like women, and, and women would dress like men, and then it would end in one big orgy. Now with that in mind, that leads us to number two, and that was prostitution. Keep in mind, we've mentioned this before, but in the city of Corinth was the world-famous temple called the Temple of Aphrodite, which, as I've said before, was a temple that housed more than a thousand temple prostitutes. Now listen, those prostitutes were both female prostitutes and male prostitutes. Now the male prostitutes, by the way, uh, would, 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 would grow long hair and would dress like women and would go down on the streets and sell themselves to men. So we put it all together and here's what was happening. You see, in that culture, in the city of Corinth, the only women in that day who, who, who did not have head coverings or, or who had short hair, in some cases even no hair at all, the only women that, that looked like that were the prostitutes of the temple. It was their way to communicate that they were for sale. We'd be on the level today of a woman walking around in a, in a short, tight, red leather miniskirt and, and, and stilettos and fishnet stockings. It's a way to advertise that you are for sale. And then uh, uh, the only men in that culture that had long hair were the prostitute men from the temple. It was their way of advertising that they were for sale. You see, in that culture, the hair, the head covering meant something. It was basically a for sale sign. Interesting enough that Deuteronomy 22:5 5 says, A woman must not wear men's clothing, and a man must not wear women's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. Because in that culture, the way you dressed, your hair, your, in all of that, it meant something. It was sending a message. And that's why culture mattered. Now on that note, you finally get to it. Verse 16 We we, we, we talk about the role. We talk about what is a woman's place in the church. And so in verse 16, Paul says, If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now that's how we know we're talking about the church. Because he says, nor do the churches of God. That's interesting. We notice the word contentious. He says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious. The term used here is the Greek uh, philonokios. It's an interesting word. It's made of, of, of two Greek terms, phileo, which means love, and, and, and nekios, which, which means arguing or, or, or fighting or striving. We put it together, and what it means is, is those who love to argue, those who love to fight. Know anybody like that? This is not the time, by the way, for an elbow to the person next to you. But someone who just loves arguing. Now, now, with that, keep in mind, that as we've seen in previous chapters, that the Corinthian church was a church that was filled with division, right? I mean, this is a church, as we've already seen, that, that they loved to fight over, over who their favorite preacher was. And so some are saying, oh, I'm of the Apostle Paul, and others would say, well, I'm of, I'm of, uh, of Apollos, and others would say, I'm of Peter, and not only were they fighting over their favorite preacher, but they're also fighting over, over who baptized them. You know, I was baptized by Paul, and I was baptized by Apollos. And, and then on top of all of that, then they even fought over their favorite pet doctrines. Know anybody like that? Know anybody that just loves to fight over their favorite doctrines, their favorite theological stance? I mean, every time you see them, they, you know, they just want to pick a theological fistfight. You know, they always want to talk about, you know, Calvinism versus Arminianism, or pre-trib versus post-trib, or Wheaties versus Captain Crunch, or, or whatever it is. They just love to argue. Well, that was the Corinthian church. And evidently, one of the things that the Corinthian church loved to fight over, loved to argue about, was the role of Women. Now again, this wasn't about the role of women in society. It wasn't about whether or not women could drive or, or, or work or vote or anything like that. It was the role of women in the church. So what is it? What is the role of women in the church? What is a woman's place in the church? Well, evidently, when, when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see that one of the things that women could do in the church was use the gift of prophecy. So we go back to verse 5, and we see that that besides praying, it says in verse 5 that when a woman does prophesy, her head should be covered. She should wear a head covering. But that verse would seem to imply that when she's in church, she can use the gift of prophecy. That's one of the things she can do in church. Now, in the next coming weeks, as we get into chapters 12, 13, and 14, we'll talk about what the gift of prophecy is and, and how to use that gift and get a better understanding of it. But at least here we understand that women were allowed to use the gift of prophecy in the church. In fact, in the Bible, we, we see numerous examples of women using the gift of prophecy. For for example, Luke chapter 2, verse 36. Luke chapter 2, verse 36, we meet Anna, the prophetess who spoke a word of prophecy over the baby Jesus when, when Mary and Joseph brought the baby Jesus to the temple. Likewise, Acts chapter 21, we, we meet the four daughters of Philip, and the Bible says that each of his four daughters were prophetesses. Hard word to say in the plural. And then along with that, Exodus chapter 15, we find out that Miriam, the the sister of Moses, she was a prophetess. And then likewise, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3, we find out that not only was Isaiah a prophet, but his wife was also a prophetess. And so we have example after example in the scriptures of women using the gift of prophecy. Now listen, just as the Corinthians were, 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 were contentious and just as the Corinthians loved to fight over, over, over the, the role of women and argue what the role of women was in the church, listen, some things have never changed, right? I don't know if you keep up with this, but that's still a very, very popular fight today. Especially, by the way, in the Southern Baptist Convention, the Southern Baptist Church. I mean, right now as we speak, they are fighting over that very thing. In fact, they're dividing over that thing, that very thing. Now, it all goes back to to May 21st, I'm sorry, May, May of 2021, I don't know what May 21st was, but May of 2021, where a pastor named Rick Warren, he's the pastor of a church called Saddleback in California, but he decided publicly to ordain three women. Now, in fairness, he did not ordain them to be senior pastors. In fact, these were women that were serving either in youth ministry or children's ministries or or music ministry, but he ordained them publicly, and when he did, I mean, it sparked a wildfire in the Baptist movement. Now, since then, Rick Warren has retired, and, and and he's passed the church off to another pastor by the name of Andy Wood. Now, Andy Wood, on the other hand, has taken things to the next level. It's like he's taken Rick Warren's bet and raised it. And so now Andy Wood has has not only ordained women, but he's actually ordained his wife, Stacy to be the co-teaching pastor of Saddleback Church. Again, causing this this wildfire to just spread and spread and spread. But before Saddleback, before Rick Warren, the, the debate really got triggered with a woman by the name of Beth Moore. You might have heard of her. She's like a walking fire starter, you know. And so uh, the the debate all started back in in, in Mother's Day uh, of 2021 when, when she was invited to be the guest speaker uh, for, for a Sunday morning church service for Mother's Day, and she got up in front of everybody and she and she delivered this great message. But the problem is that there are many who believe that, that a woman should not preach from the pulpit if there's men in the room. Well, it was a Sunday morning church service, and, and and she spoke, and it I mean it caused the Twitter sphere to go nuts. In fact, there's a pastor, John Buse, uh, who was a Southern Baptist pastor in Georgia. He got on social media and said, the SBC should say no more to Beth Moore. And then John MacArthur decided to chime in. He's not even Baptist. He just wanted to, you know, pile on. John MacArthur jumps in and, and, and he tells Beth Moore to go home. And then he adds these words and says, just because you have the skill to sell jewelry on the TV sales channel doesn't mean you should be preaching. It was just one after another after another. And so when it comes to this debate of whether women should, should serve in the ministry or do this or do that, I mean, we have all these different opinions. In fact, a, a fellow Calvary Chapel pastor, I won't mention his name, but, but a fellow Calvary Chapel pastor said this. He said, Christine Kane, Kay Arthur, Anne Graham Lotz, Beth Moore might be gifted communicators, but trust me, when a woman stands in a pulpit to expound on God's word, heaven shudders. And now, many that have this opinion, they, they, they often refer to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where the Apostle Paul tells Timothy this. He says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, we should point out that in the original Greek, the, the language here is implying that there was a group of women in Timothy's church that he was pastoring. Remember, he was pastoring a church called the Church of Ephesus, and the Greek language seems to imply that, that there were a group of women in the church who were being unruly. How do we know that? It's because of the word silence that Paul uses. When he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence, the Greek term that he uses there for silence is, is hestia. Now, this is a term that, that does not mean complete silence. It does not mean total and absolute silence, no talking whatsoever, That's not what the word means. In fact, what the word literally means is do not be unruly. So that's how we know that there were some women in the church who evidently were being unruly. Why? Because Paul said, do not be unruly. He wasn't saying, women, don't talk ever again. Keep your mouth shut. He's saying, do not be unruly. In fact, actually, if the Apostle Paul intended that women should never talk in church, keep their lips completely zipped the whole time they're in church, he would have used a completely different Greek word. He would have used the Greek word segao, which literally means be silent. We'd say in Spanish, cayete. <laughs> cayete la boca, estúpido. <laughs> right? You know, just make that point. You just you, No talking. But that's not that. So he didn't use that word. He didn't rudely say shut up. He didn't rudely say zip it, freak. He said, he said, do not be unruly. Do not be unruly. Now, by the way, it's interesting. The, the word authority in, 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 in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 12, when, when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. That word authority, authenteto, it's a word that means to dominate or usurp authority over. See, the issue here wasn't guest speaking on a Sunday morning in front of men. The issue here wasn't, wasn't leading a certain ministry or anything. The issue here was, was usurping authority. Literally what the Apostle Paul was saying is, you know what? I will not tolerate when a woman usurps the authority, tries, tries to come in and circumvent things and tries to make herself the senior pastor and the lead Bible teacher of this church. I won't tolerate it. I won't stand for it. I will not permit a woman to usurp the authority of a church. But this verse isn't saying that, that women can't serve in the church. This, this verse isn't saying that, that women can't lead small groups or that women can't, can't lead children's ministries or, or youth ministries or, or, or even speak at a conference, for that matter, or even speak as a guest speaker at a church on a Sunday morning church service. In fact, uh, Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of our movement, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, and pastor Chuck made it very, very clear that he believed that women should not serve as the senior pastor of a church. But at the same time, by his example, he had guest speakers at his church that were both men and women alike. For example, on, on more than one occasion, he would have Corey Ten Boom uh, speak at his church, who, by the way, was a, a Dutch Reformed Calvinist, but she spoke at his church on more than one occasion at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. And so the verse isn't saying that, that, that women can't serve in the ministry. It's just saying that there's only one role that they cannot serve in, and that's the role of the senior pastor, the role of the lead pastor of the church. But listen, in the Bible, we see that, that women are, are used in, in, in many different roles. There's a lot of different places that women can serve other than the kitchen. For example, uh, Second Chronicles 34, verse, verse 22, uh, we're introduced to a woman by the name of Huldah. And Huldah was a woman who came and proclaimed the word of God to a king by the name of Josiah, the king of Judah. So evidently, women can even serve in a political advisory role. Then we come to Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. And in Romans 16, verse 1 and 2, uh, we see that the Apostle Paul allowed a woman by the name of Phoebe to serve as a deacon in that church. In fact, by the way, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and also in Titus, the Apostle Paul talks about the role of a deaconess, meaning that in the church there can be men who serve as deacons and there can be women who serve as deacons. And then likewise, in Romans chapter 16, verse 7, The Apostle Paul says this, he says, Greet Andronicus and Junius, Junius, by the way, is a woman's name. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles. So now this verse seems to imply that that this woman named Junius was actually serving in the role as an apostle in that church. Then, of course, we're all familiar with, with Priscilla and her husband Aquila, who taught doctrine, they taught theology to a man by the name of Apollos. And, and, you know, and so the point is, is that there are places for women to serve. In fact, a moment ago, I mentioned Catherine uh, Booth, uh, the, the wife of, of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. Now, not only was his wife serving in that ministry, but William Booth had a lot of different women serving in a lot of different roles in his ministry, so much so that he received a lot of criticism for it. In fact, on one occasion, somebody came up and they said, hey, why do you have so many women serving in your ministry? He smiled and said, hey, listen, some of my best men are women. <laughs> But here's the point. The point is that it was the Greek culture who said a woman's place is in the home bearing children. That's not the Bible. That's not the word of God. That was the Greek culture. That was the world that sent that message. So here's the truth. The truth is that God uses broken men and women to reach broken men and women. And the truth of the matter is it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been, man or woman alike, God has a plan for you, God has a purpose for you, and God has a place for you in his church. There's a place for you in his body, man or woman alike. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.